Amen. It's great to be with you today. I'm glad that you have chosen to be here in God, among God's people this morning. And if you have a copy of God's Word in some form, I would love for you to join me in the book of Luke chapter 16. We're kind of in this like mini series in the midst of a larger series as we are looking at the book of Luke as a whole. But then we've kind of been in the last chapter 15 and 16 have been walking through this text uh, where we have kind of seen uh, Jesus address motivation, Jesus address desire, our prompting for why we do what we do. And we've seen that as he's kind of played it out through this teaching in this one conversation, extensive conversation that he was having with a group of people. And this morning will be a continuation and a completion of that this morning. And so, so as, as, as Jesus began this topic in this conversation, he began with three stories that illustrated his intense desire for us to engage the lost. He, he told that through three parables, a parable of a coin that was lost, a parable of sheep who were lost. And he told this story and he said that, that we're to engage the spiritually needy, not out of obligation, but out of a kingdom mindset like the one Jesus proclaimed and Jesus demonstrated. Jesus would challenge those around him that if we're going to live life in the boundaries of his kingdom agenda, then we will have intense compassion and an intense urgency for the lost. Those who are living this life and who will live the life to come, eternity apart from God. And Jesus does this in the face of the religious establishment who were men who appeared to have devotion to God through their activity yet through self-centeredness and religion and self-righteousness had allowed sin to blind them to the truth. They were men who felt justified through their actions. They really felt like what they were doing was sufficient. So they felt very justified through their actions and they were men who were very judgmental through comparison of their lives to the lives of the sinners and the tax collectors. And Jesus wanted to show them that his heart was for the very ones that they would judge in contrast. Well, we looked last week at how he shifts this discussion to his disciples. So he's now talking to those who were claimed to be his followers. And, and he shifts this discussion to challenge them through the parable of the dishonest manager and the shrewd manager. And we talked about how that, that we are his, as his followers should see that all that we have been entrusted with we don't have ownership of, but all that we have been entrusted with on this earth, our money and our homes and our time and our gifts, every talents he's given us, that all of that is something that is actually not ours, but something that has been entrusted to us. So we do not own 90% of it, and he owns 10 that we give back to him, but instead he owns 100% of it. It's his, and he's given it to us to manage well. So, so we leverage our money and our possessions not for ourselves, not for our own satisfaction, not for just our simple enjoyment here on this earth, but instead for the advancement of the kingdom. And though he was teaching to his disciples, it even says in, in, in the scripture that he, had, he, had, he, he said to his disciples, we learned that, that in verse 14 that the religious were still hanging around. Even though he had quit, a, quit a addressing their, their questions and, and, and concerns, he was talking specifically to his disciples. They were still hanging around and listening to the discussion. And in verse 14 and 15 of Luke chapter 16, Luke would write in Jesus' words, the Pharisees who loved money heard all this and they were sneering at Jesus. 
And he said to them, you are the ones who justify yourselves in the eyes of men, but God knows your hearts. He says, what is highly valued among men is detestable in God's sight. So understanding this audience is critical for us to understand and finish out this chapter and see the context of the parable that Jesus is going to teach. So I want you to follow this thinking. In understanding the context of who Jesus is talking to, I believe he has a word for us to see this morning that Jesus is addressing very religious people who were very affluent. They were very wealthy. They had a deep love for money. And because of their deep love for money and personal possessions, they had began to justify their actions. They had begun to justify their affections within the boundaries of their religious devotion. So this is a group of people who were trying to do what was by law correct, not legal law, but by the biblical law that God had given them. They were trying to do it correctly, but yet they had such a deep love for the things of this world and for their own personal money and possessions that they had begun to justify their actions and their affections within the framework of their religious structures and devotion. This is critical for us to catch this morning. The religious people of the day were doing life in the framework of extreme religious devotion. Yet they were completely indulging in the love of stuff. This is a word for God's people today. We're gonna see in a moment that Jesus' parable, though it appears to be simply about heaven and hell and eternity is actually a parable about the danger of people who love their money and their stuff without a generous heart and they justify this love in the middle of their religion. We live in a very affluent area of our world. The fact that you are sitting in this room this morning means that you are in the upper financial class considering the demographics of our global population. You may say, well, you have not seen my bank account, obviously. But if you look across the world, as we'll see in a moment, we live in a very wealthy portion of our society and a, and a part of our world which is very much consume, consuming consumers. And so, but rather than giving you just statistics after statistics of the global situation to, to contrast to our wealth, my desire is not to motivate you this morning through guilt. My desire is not to just paint a picture of the global landscape and our, uh, and compared to our consumption as Western Christians and then through that contrast for you to be, feel guilty to do something. That's not my intent this morning. But instead, I wanna motivate you this morning to action through grace, not guilt, through the gospel, not guilt. That we will become a people who are not like who we will see in the parable this morning by becoming people who have not only misused what has been entrusted to us, but people who have justified our actions in the context of our religious activities. That is what I want us to warn against this morning. So prior to getting into the parable, which is gonna be a very intense parable, I wanna just very methodically walk through this portion of the end of chapter 16 and just talk through this bridge text between the last parable and the parable that Jesus 
uh, we'll, we'll share this morning. And I want us just to see what God intends for his audience. Now, if you're a note taker, I want to make it easy on you this morning. This sermon has one point. So you can, if you're a note taker, now you can write and scratch all you want. But I'm going to give you one thing this morning, okay? One point sermon this morning. So here you go. The point that I hope that this painted, this, the picture that's painted as we walk through this text together this morning is that the stewardship of what has been entrusted to us has irreversible, eternal implications. Let me say that one more time. The stewardship of what has been entrusted to us, what we've been talking about for weeks and weeks now, three or four weeks now, the stewardship of what has been trusted, entrusted to us has irreversible eternal implications. So I want us to join together in verse 14 of Luke 16. And let's, let's walk through this very, very, very methodically and just go down through the passage. I want to just get a wrap a bow around what Jesus, because he's going to transition. And in the next chapter, he's going to shift the discussion. But I want us to see how this all ties together to give us a complete package of what it means to be a heart, to, to reflect a heart of generosity as God's people. So let's read in verse 14. So the Pharisees, who were lovers of money, they heard all these things, all this stuff that Jesus had taught about the lost sheep and the lost coin and the prodigal son and the shrewd manager and how, how God's people should take advantage of the opportunities that they have been given. So they had heard all of those things and they ridiculed him. Why? Because they were lovers of money. And he said to them, you are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts. For what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. So follow with me for just a moment. The Pharisees, who were looked on as the religious elite of that day, had in the middle of their religion developed a sinful love for money and things. And when they hear Jesus attack the very issue of being generous with what we have been given, what is not ours but has been entrusted to us, they are infuriated. They ridicule Jesus. And Jesus goes right to the heart and he says, you know what? You have an insufficient view of the law that you operate under. He says, he says, outwardly, you look like you are doing the right things. Jesus never attacked that they were not very, very, they erred on the side of caution when it came to obedience to the outward expressions of the law. He says, outwardly, you look like you are doing the right things. You're going through the religious motions and you're attempting to justify yourself before other people so that it appears that you are religious, but yet God knows the true condition of your heart. He says that the heart motivation is wrong. It doesn't match the activity. These guys knew scripture. They're following all the rules. They are giving alms to the poor as the, as the, as the uh, law dictated. So they are giving some money to the poor at the minimum requirement that the law would have given. They would stand on the street corners and pray so that it could be seen by man. They would walk around making it known when they were fasting. So they fasted and they prayed. They would make it, when they would fast, they would make their, they said, the scripture said they would kind of disfigure their face so that you would know they were all oh, in such pain. I've been fasting today. They wanted it to be known that they were carrying out this religious function of the law. They would appear physically weak from fasting. I mean, they were just a true piece of work. And Jesus calls them out on it. And he says, I don't care if your actions are right because your hearts are wicked. 
He says, you don't make, he says, you, you, don't, you don't make the rules. You don't make them and bend them to fit what you want them to be. He said, I have given the, the, the law and there's a purpose and there's a heart motivation behind that. But yet you have completely made it the way in which you want to use it to justify yourself while your heart and inwardly is wrong. He would, he would compare them in another passage of scripture to a tomb who was beautiful on the outside and who everything looks correct. But on the inside, it's full of dead man's bones. He said, that's what you're like. You know, all throughout God's word, he addresses motivation. When God was dealing with the Israelites over and over and over and over and over for their unfaithfulness, he would speak to them in one particular instance, instant through the prophet Amos about activity. The Israelites would wander from God as they would often do and the true, complete, uh, the true, true uh, attitude of their hearts would be completely off base. But yet they were still going through the religious motions. They had completely abandoned God who had delivered them and who had provided for them and who had given manna to eat and who had, who had led them out of captivity and they would just completely get, forget that and they would start living for themselves and form other gods and they would, you know, in one instance they're worshiping God, the next instance they're melting down their gold and forming a cow that they could worship. They were completely all over the place and through Amos we see they would carry out festivals. They would continue the religious sacrifices. They would continue to do everything that the law had said so that they could be justified through that. And then in, the ch- in chapter 5 of Amos, God would lash out at this behavior of religious activity without a true heart motivation for worship of God. And he would tell them they were outwardly going through the motions. And in verse 21, he would say, look, you're doing all this stuff, but let me tell you the truth here. I hate, I despise your feasts. And I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. He said, even though you offer me your burnt offerings and your grain offerings, I will not accept them. And the peace offerings of your fattened animals, I will not look upon them. He said, take, listen to this. He said, take away from me the noise of your songs. He said, stop singing to me. To the melody of your harps, I'm not even listening. And he says, but here's what I want. I want justice to roll down like water. And righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. He says, look, you, you can keep on singing. And you can keep on bringing the sacrifices, but I don't want to hear it. Because I know what the heart condition is, and it's off. It's wrong. King David, after seeing the true condition of his heart, after committing adultery and murder, finally comes to an end to himself in confession and repentance before God. And we read about it in Psalm 51 when he realizes it is about his heart and not his activity. And look what he says. He says for, in verse 16 of Psalm 51, he says, For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I'd give it to you. He said, if I could just do a sacrifice and that would make things right, I would do it. If I could burn an offering to you and, and, and you would be pleased, I would do it. But he says, this is what you want. The sacrifices that you want, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit. A broken and contrite heart, oh God, you will not despise. So over and over again, Jesus goes to the issue of the heart. And here he tells the Pharisees, this thing you were doing in front of people, this acting job you were doing before God, he says, it's an abomination. He said, right actions do not always mean a right heart. So he said, look, guys, you're, yeah, you're justified before men. And men look at you and they go, wow, I wish I could just be as religious elite as these guys. They do everything right. And he says, but your heart... 
is completely wrong. God cares about motivation. He cares about motivation. But then it gets interesting. Let's read some more. Verse 16. He says, The law and the prophets were until John, but since then the good news of the kingdom of God is preached, and everyone forces his way into it. But it is easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one dot of the law to become void. Now, I don't have a ton of time to unpack the implications of the law here on this verse. We could just spend the next few weeks on that, but let's dig just a little this morning. Jesus is saying here that the law that I gave you for you to operate under, this law did nothing more than prove that you cannot justify yourselves by your own actions and by your own obedience and by your own adherence to it. And he says, these prophets that I gave you to speak the word of God to you, they both of those acted as your guide until now John the Baptist this transitional figure is now in the New Testament and this is a new law that he is a new covenant he is bringing in the forerunner to Jesus who would come to prepare the way for the coming of the prophesied Messiah in Jesus John he represented a turning point if you will in the spiritual timeline of humanity John was prophesied to be the transitional figure between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. Isaiah would say in chapter 40 that he would say, in in reference to John the Baptist, this is hundreds of years before John came, he would say, prepare the way of the Lord. There's one coming that will prepare the way of the Lord and make straight in the wilderness the highway for our God. And that was John's message when he came. And I think that this is important to see here. Because without understanding that this was the prophecy in which God had given for his people, that John would come as this transition piece without seeing that as as part of the timeline that God had had established since before creation, it could get a little confusing that this is kind of like plan A and plan B. That the law and the prophets were given to correct the fundamental problem of sin in humanity. That was plan A. Plan A didn't work. It failed. So they put plan B into place. As if Jesus and the Trinity said, you know, God says, all right, Jesus and Holy Spirit, y'all get in here. Talk about this, the problem, what's going on here? Jesus says, I'll handle it. He says, all right, go get them, Jesus. This is not that rally moment where they have met, where he's like, we're panicking. The plan didn't work. What do we do? Well, we get plan B. No, you see, this is plan B was the plan all along. And so to miss this verse as as setting that up is to miss the centrality of his meaning. Paul wanted to show here, or or Luke, as Jesus shares, he wanted them to know that there's a new covenant that is coming, that John has come. And when John came, it completely, the law and the prophets were until him, but since then, the good news of the kingdom is preached. Okay, I want to read Galatians chapter 3, says a little bit about this better than I could, could say it. And Paul writes this, beginning in verse 15. He says, to give a human example, brothers, Even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. Now, the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. This is what I mean. The law, which came 430 years afterward, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise. But God gave it to Abraham by a promise. So why then the law? The law was added because of transgressions until the offspring should come to who the promise had been made. And it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. 
Now, an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For, it, it, for if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. So he said if the law would have worked, we would have just stuck with the law, but the law wouldn't work. Verse 22, it says, but the scripture, the law imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise of faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law. We were imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then, listen, the law was our guardian until Christ came. John the Baptist's message. The law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many as you were baptized into Christ, you have put on Christ. There is now neither no Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male. There is no female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring and you are heirs according to promise. So he says, look here, the law was put in place. It held you captive. But now that Christ has come, this message that John the Baptist would, would, would bring to them, now that Christ has come, we are heirs according to promise. So the law would show our insufficiency to perform and our need for a savior. And John the Baptist comes on to the scene. And now the kingdom of God is preached. So Jesus was not plan B, but Jesus was the plan all along. And so now, we don't seek performance by the law. He's telling these guys who are constantly trying to earn right standing because of performance by the law. And he says, look, I, the, the word has come. I am he who has been promised. And so now it's not about, about performance by the law, but we seek to serve the fulfillment of the law, which is Jesus Christ. But the ending of verse 16 also lends itself to need a little clarity. Because at the surface, it appears as if we are back to performance again. If you look back, it says, since the good news of the kingdom of God is preached and everyone forces his way into it. So it looks as if we're back saying that the kingdom is now preached and now people are having to force their way into the kingdom through performance. This is not alluding to that. Instead, Jesus shows through this, this urgent, this single-minded pursuit that those who desire the kingdom will have. That people, when you for, you're, just, you're pressing, you just want it so much, this good news of the kingdom, it means everything to us. We're consumed by it. It is our motivation. Jesus would tell this in a parable another way when he would say the kingdom is like a man who found a great treasure. And upon finding this great treasure, rather than just doing what it took, the minimum amount that it took to get the treasure, it says he sold all that he had. The man who had truly discovered the treasure which represented the kingdom. He said he sold all that he had and he went and bought the entire field to make sure that he did not miss getting that treasure. He says this is what this single pursuit is. This is what this forcing our way into it is. He's alluding to the truth that is found all throughout the New Testament that Jesus is our pursuit. Jesus is our goal. Jesus is what we are willing to completely sell out to. That's what he's attacking here all throughout this parable. The stuff of the world is not as important compared to knowing Jesus and worshiping Jesus, serving Jesus. That is our single-minded pursuit. The good news of the kingdom has been preached and we, are, we force our way into it. We want it so much. We desire the kingdom. 
And Jesus would say that the law does not pass away, but Jesus fulfills it. The law was not just some arbitrary rule that we said, well, I don't even need to read the Old Testament because it has nothing to do with now. No, Jesus was the fulfillment. The law was not just some arbitrary rule that God just band-aided humanity with, but the law was intended to lead people towards God pre-Christ and to doing the life the way he designed. And God's people failed miserably, but Jesus comes and he brings salvation and he fulfills the law and it's sacrificial requirements. Let's read on. Verse 18. Everyone who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery. And he who marries a woman divorced from her husband commits adultery. So, so Jesus, why bring up a sermon on marriage in this particular flow on what we treasure? What is Jesus trying to do here? The truth of this matter is supremely, this text is not really even about marriage. Now, while the truths of the importance of covenant marriage are upheld by this passage, the reason for Jesus teaching it here is not to do a side sermon on marriage. This is not, oh yeah, by the way, while I've been like just bashing you about your money and your misuse of possessions, let me go ahead and just get you on marriage while we're here. No, he's not shifting gears here. Jesus is using this once again to show how the Pharisees even though they were trying to be justified the law, by the law, were not even following the law in many ways. And one example was in marriage. He's saying, he's attacking them. By, they, they've been trying to justify themselves by the law apart from the grace of, of God. And so Jesus wants to, to kind of play devil's advocate and say, can he play devil's advocate? I don't know if he can even do that. But, but he's, try, he's trying to do this thing where he, he, he like shows them, look, you have been, you have been uh, operating. So let's just say, if you could justify yourself by the law, you're not even doing that right. And he says, one example is marriage. Now, I don't have time to completely walk through this. And at some point, I want to come back and talk through the teaching of Jesus on divorce and marriage like we covered last September. But the law, in, in a nutshell, the law had some concessions for divorce that we find in Deuteronomy 24 that allowed a man, if he found some indecency in his wife, to give her a certificate of divorce, provide for her what she needed in order to be cared for. So some Pharisees took a loose view of divorce. Some Pharisees would condone divorce for no good reason. If they just kind of lacked desire for their current wife and they wanted another woman, they would, in, in, a, in this way, adultery, would, they would give them the certificate and adultery didn't actually take place according to the law and they felt as if they were justified under the law. And so Jesus is saying here, he pointed out that this is a perfect example of justifying themselves in the eyes of men so by man's standard, they're saying, okay, they're complying with the law. These guys are still okay. But Jesus is saying here, you're justifying yourselves in the eyes of men, but you are not being justified before God. And your marriage and the way you're handling divorce is totally wrong. And I believe Jesus shows that by his fulfilling of the law, he brings an intensification to the law. That's why he words it this way. He says, if you divorce your wife and marry another, you're committing adultery. He wants to intensify this law. And I believe that Jesus does this in a variety of ways. He would speak the same idea on the Sermon of the Mount, which is found in Matthew 5, when he says, don't think that I have come to abolish the law, but I've come to fulfill it. And he gives them examples of ways in which it'd be easy to comply with the law, but his target was our hearts and not our behavior. And he would go one after the next teaching on this. So he would say things like this in the Sermon on the Mount. He would say, I, you have heard that it, that it is said, do not murder, 
So if they did not murder, they would be in compliance with the law and outwardly were being justified in the eyes of men. But he would say, I say, don't even be angry with your brother. He says, I'm contrasting this performance. I want you to be justified before God the Father. So he said, the law says, do not murder. I say, don't even be angry with your brother. He said, you have heard it was said that you shall not commit adultery. I say, don't even look lustfully at another woman. He would say, it was said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say, don't divorce except on the grounds of sexual immorality. He would say, you have heard it was said to love your neighbors and hate your enemies. That's what the law says. But I say, love your enemies, bless them. Jesus would intensify the law. He wanted these religious elite to see through this two little verses he inserts here before the parable. To see that, guys, you're trying to justify by the law, but you're not even doing a good job of that. I want everything. I don't want just your compliance and obedience to the law. I want your heart. I want everything. He says, so so track with me here. Jesus is clearly pointing out to the Pharisees a blatant way in which they were being justified in the eyes of man, but not being justified before God. And he uses this as an example to say that I want the motivation of your heart to be pure. I don't want just your activity. Yeah, great, you're giving alms to the poor. You're tithing your spice rack. You're doing all these things, compliance. But I want your heart. And that's what he wants to get to in this passage. And he wants to show them that, hey, you're even, you're even failing at trying to do everything right by the law. But then let's end. Jesus ends with this parable. Let's get to the parable now. Verse 19 through 31 and he brings us to the close to reiterate my original point of this sermon. Let's, let's read together. He flows right in in the same conversation and says, There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus. He was covered with sores. He desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. The poor man died, and he was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried, and in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes, and he saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me, and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things. And Lazarus, in like manners, bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in anguish. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able and none may cross from there to us. And he said, then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house. For I have five brothers so that he may warn them lest they also come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, no, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. And he said to them, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. What an interesting parable. So a very interesting story that rich man, an unnamed rich man, and Lazarus, 
not to be confused with Lazarus that we read about later being raised from the dead. This is a beggar named Lazarus, the only named character in any of Jesus' parables. It's only fitting that his name would mean God is my helper. Now we need to see right away that this parable is drawing a close to Jesus' teaching on wealth and poverty. But it does not mean that if you are wealthy and have stuff, you go to hell. And if you are poor and don't have stuff, you go to heaven. This is not what this is saying, okay? We know that salvation is through Christ alone, through faith alone, through the glory of God alone. But at the same time, Jesus is teaching that he has a compassionate heart for the poor. And likewise, if we have a heart that has been shaped by Christ, we will be compassionate for the same things that he is compassionate for. From the moment that Jesus comes onto the scene, his heart is for the poor, both physically and spiritually. He spoke about money more than heaven and hell combined, which is why I think he has spent great length over these two chapters to reiterate several parables to allude to his point that we are to be a people who are generous and good stewards of what has been entrusted to us. In Luke chapter 4, Jesus comes onto the scene, and look what his message is. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to whom? To the poor. Luke 6.20 says, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. And here we see Lazarus one who was poor and neglected. And we see the parallel through the parable that the poor are the ones in which the God we worship had great compassion for. And there is punishment for the one without a regenerated heart who only has religious justification that only seeks man's approval and not God's. Now, I want to be careful to not underemphasize the teaching on hell and the eternal implications of this passage because it is real. There is a real place of punishment. And there is a real place of protection and fellowship. We receive the redemption of God and see the intensity of the punishment that awaits those who die in rebellion to God. Francis Chan would talk about it like this in reference to how we often receive the redemption but not recognize the other side of it. He said it's incredibly arrogant to pick and choose which incomprehensible truths we embrace. No one wants to ditch God's plan of redemption, even though it doesn't always make sense to us. Neither should we erase God's revealed plan of punishment because it doesn't sit well with us. He said as soon as we do this, we are putting God's actions in submission to our own reasoning which is a ridiculous thing for the clay to do. So we see that there is a reality to this parable. And Jesus teaches this monumental truth that he wants us to see that if we indulge ourselves and neglect the poor without a regenerate heart in Christ, that earth is our reward. And with an unchanged heart, hell is our eternity. Now track with me. We're not going back to doing good deeds to earn salvation. 
But Jesus wants us to see that a heart that has been changed by the gospel of Jesus will be a heart that has compassion for the poor, both spiritually and physically. Luke 6, verse 24 through 25, Jesus would say in his great sermon, he says, Woe to you who are rich, for you have already received your comfort. Woe to you who are well fed now, for you will go hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you will mourn and weep. May we heed a stern warning from Jesus this morning that it is possible to be very religious people, yet a people who are spiritually deceived and be headed to a road of eternal separation from God. May we heed that this morning. This is not just about activity. I'm not talking about if you give away stuff and take a plea of poverty, that that makes you any more, before God, any more changed. God wants a regenerate heart. That's what he's been after, all of these parables. And yet we must see that it's possible to be very religious in our activity before men, but be spiritually deceived. Jesus would issue a warning in Luke 7 where he would say, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But who will? The one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. He says, on that day, many will say to me, hear this verse to the Pharisees. Many will say to me, Lord, did we prophesy in your name? Didn't we cast out demons in your name? Didn't we do mighty works in your name? And then he says, I'm going to declare to them, but I never knew you. I never knew you. Despite your religious activity, you are a worker of lawlessness. Now, I want us to be careful that we're not talking about just activity. We're talking about activity that flows from a changed heart that has radically reoriented all of life to leverage it for the things of God. So we're talking about money here, yes. We're talking about possessions, yes. We're talking about time. We're talking about what we do with our family structures. We're talking about everything that's been given to us as a gift. How do we leverage it for the kingdom out of a heart that has been transformed? How do we not look to our religious activity to show a changed heart, but how do we look to a changed heart to dictate then how we live life? Because he says you can be very religious and do really great things and not know Jesus. Now, that is a scripture that I, if, if there's a scripture that keeps pastors up at night, that's the one. Because I want you to hear this morning, and I, I hate to just harp on it, but I want you to hear this morning. Please do not find justification in your activities. It is an empty well. It's an empty well. Don't compare your life to others and say, well, I do this, 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 and this, and be spiritually deceived and have the heart of the Father say, I, I never, but I never knew you. I never knew you. So I want us to feel the intensity of his warning, but I want us to see the context of the the discussion. Because Jesus, as he has been teaching his disciples, and he he talks to these Pharisees now, I think we need to heed a warning that we not become the rich man. We live in a world of extreme poverty and need, yet we sit in the context of, often of our comfortable lives and surroundings, ignoring 
the poor at the gate. I want you to hear these statistics. At least 80% of humanity, 80% of humanity lives on less than $10 a day. 22,000 children will die each day to poverty. Some 1.1 billion people in developing countries have inadequate access to water and 2.6 billion lack basic sanitation. Approximately half of the world's population now lives in cities and towns. And in 2005, one out of every three urban dwellers, approximately one billion people, were living in slum conditions. That's the reality of the world we live in. But yet in the United States, we spend $8 billion, $8 billion a year on cosmetics. We spend $12 billion a year on perfume. And we spend $17 billion on pet food. Now, do these statistics cause guilt and conviction? Probably. But that's not the motivation. For that to be the motivation would be to miss the essence of what Jesus is trying to say is the motivation. So what is the motivation? That we have a heart for Jesus And Jesus had a heart for the poor. We're not motivated to care for the poor by guilt, but we are motivated to care for the poor by the gospel. And so because he had a heart for the poor, he has called his people to steward through his gifts that he has blessed us with. This is not, again, I told you last week, this is not a plea to poverty. This is a plea to use the wealth that God has gifted us with for the sake of the kingdom. We don't denounce and feel guilty for having stuff. Praise God that he has gifted us graciously from his hand. Let's use it. It takes money to, to, to get rid of a lot of the global issues. Let's leverage what he's given us. It's a gift from him. We leverage those things for the kingdom. He has entrusted them to us for the advancement of the kingdom and through the advancement of his, his gospel to those that he had a heart and who he came for. So this morning, the application is simple. I think God wants us to, through this kind of tying a bow around the last four weeks, I think that God wants us to see three things this morning very quickly in conclusion. First of all, hear the conviction of the word of God. Can we hear the conviction of the word of God? Our desire is not to be justified outwardly by our religious activities, but to inwardly be transformed so that our hearts Beat for God. Matthew 6, 21 says, where your treasure is, there your heart is going to be. So we can say that we have a heart for certain things, but where your treasure is, there's your heart is going to be also. Hebrews 13, 5, keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. The greatest treasure is a guarantee to us. 1 Timothy 6, but godliness with contentment is great gain. We brought nothing into the world. We can't take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing with these, we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into a temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. May we hear the conviction of the word of God and may we obey the commandments of the word of God.
May we obey his commandments. What is the commandment? Live generously. Steward well for the sake of the kingdom. Jesus never said anything about that there was wrong with having things. In fact, in 1 Timothy, he would write directly about that. 1 Timothy 6, he would say, as for the rich in this present age, charge them. He says, look, there's going to be people with wealth. Yeah, so here's what you do. Tell those who I have blessed with wealth, charge them not to be haughty, not to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but set it on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. So it's been given as a gift, but look what he says to do with it. They are to do good. They are to be rich in good works, to be generous, to be ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. Mm. Is wealth and possessions wrong? Not at all. But with those blessings comes a commandment to steward his gifts well. And finally, and what we're going to do in our time of response, may we reflect on the compassion of the word of God. Does your heart reflect compassion? Are you compassionate for people that you're willing to give so that they may know the kingdom? Do you use what God has given you? Again, this is not a guilt trip for having stuff. Are you using what God has given you for the kingdom? Is your home a place where people experience the kingdom? Is your business a place where people intersect their lives with the kingdom? Is your family structure a place where people understand and get to see the kingdom of God displayed before them through your marriages? Is your checkbook a place in which you steward well for the kingdom? Is everything recognized as a gift from God? All good gifts come down from the Father. So as we get all these good things, do we, we don't revel in guilt for having them. We leverage them for the kingdom work that God desires to do through you. So my prayer this, through these last four weeks is, is not to, again, I shared with you a couple weeks ago, this is not so you give more to us so we keep the power bill on. No, this is a heart issue. This is are you leveraging what God has given you for the kingdom? No matter if it's this much or this much, are you using what he's blessed you with in stewarding? You remember the parable of the talents. He gave one ten, one five, or gave one five, one two, one one. Neither were, it was neither about who had the most. It was about did they leverage what they were given for the kingdom. So are you leveraging your life and your possessions and the things of this earth to set up the eternal treasures that God desires for you? And that's my prayer for us as a church, that we will be a people of generosity. That we will look like Acts 2, where there were not even needs among the fellowship because they were eradicated before they became a need. That that's the kind of people we will be. And we'll trust that God has challenged us to this and will provide for us as we are generous with what he has given us. Let's pray together. God.